Well, I want to start with an observation this morning, something that I've noticed about relationships. Have you noticed that in relationships that there is a tendency for love to drive us to extravagant action towards those that we love? whether it's uh, siblings, parents, a romantic relationship, that love has this way of driving us towards extravagant action on behalf of the other. For instance, my extravagant love for my wife might drive her to forgive me, for, to forgive her for this, right? Which, by the way, if you want a haircut, my wife's available. Um, she's got some business cards. Uh, I just did that so it wouldn't be a distraction if you noticed the back of my head shaved. Uh, so love has this tendency to drive us towards extravagant action. So here, here's, here's what I mean by this. When Lauren and I were just dating, it was her senior year of college, I had graduated and was pastoring a church up in northwest Indiana a couple hours away, and we had known each other for four years, so as she's getting ready to graduate, I know that this is the girl I'm going to marry, right? So I have the conversation with her dad, get the approval. And, and I propose, and a couple weeks later, I'm probably sermon prepping, and, and she's in class, and she calls me, and she says, hey, I have some kind of good news. And when somebody qualifies good news with like kind of, right, that little qualifier is like, okay, what's that about? So she says, I have kind of good news. She says, I got this job, and I'm going to be teaching outdoor education classes in New York State. And, and I don't think I said anything for a couple seconds. I was dumbfounded because I'm in Indiana. We're going to get married. We're engaged at this point. She's going to New York State. That's a problem, right? So I, th- I think I shocked her when I said, great. I said, I'm going to resign my job, and then I'll follow you out there. She didn't expect that, right? This was her moment to like panic about commitment and run to New York State before we got married. And here I am saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to resign my job, my first grown-up job out of college, pastoring this church where I'm the only one on staff, so it will be inconvenient for them, and I'm going to follow her out to New York State. I didn't have a job lined up. I didn't have any place to live. But about a month later, I resigned my job at this church, went out to New York State, and uh, still didn't have a place to live, but the camp that she was working for graciously let me live there. And I say live there because basically they let me sleep in like a glorified shed, right? So I'm sleeping on a sleeping bag uh, in this like dirty, cold building, and I I didn't have a job, didn't know how I was going to pay my bills. But at no point did I have this sense of like, oh, why am I here? It was this thing of, this is the woman I love. She's out here. She's pursuing this thing that she's excited about. I'm going to go with her. And it was sort of as this, this, this internal compulsion, this love that I had for her, drove me towards this extravagant action of like, all right, let's jump into this adventure together. And love for another person has a way of calling out of us this sort of extravagant action on behalf of the one that we love. And so this morning, as we lit the Advent candle of love, I want us to be struck this morning by God's extravagant, gracious, irrational love for us. Because what we're celebrating in this season is that God looked on a broken world. He looked at your brokenness and my brokenness, and God loved us so much. John 3, 16, for God so loved that he gave, that he sent his son Jesus to be born in a manger in Bethlehem to bring about our redemption. And so what we are celebrating in this Advent season is the extravagant love of the God that we serve, the God who who poured out himself for us, who didn't spare his only son, but that we might be saved. Now, here's the thing. The word Advent, it just comes from a Latin word that means Adventus. It means the coming or arrival. And so in this Advent season, we celebrate the arrival of Jesus. But here's the thing. I don't want us to just sentimentalize this. Right? We, we could talk about like 
the spirit of Christmas, and we should be kind, and we should be nice, and we should be peaceful and hopeful. Listen, I want us to understand the depth and the richness of this, because the arrival of Jesus, his coming to this world, means that there is an invitation for us to respond back to the love of God, because Jesus comes to this world to pay the penalty for our sins, to invite us back into relationship with God, and which means there is an invitation for us to respond to the self-giving love of God. So I want us to wrestle with this question this morning. Steve asked it last week, and I I thought it was powerful. I said, said, I'm going to ask it again because I think it's that important. Here's the question I want us to wrestle with this morning. Are you ready to have your life turned upside down by Jesus? And that invitation to respond to God's love, the the language that we sometimes use is, I want to invite Jesus into my life. Now, that language isn't altogether bad, but I, I want us to have a caution about it. My concern is that we say, I want to invite Jesus into my life. My concern is that we say, I've got my agenda. I've got my five-year plan. Jesus, if you want to hop along, you can. You know those those stickers that Jesus is my co-pilot? It's as if we say, Jesus, why don't you hop in the passenger seat? I'll take us to a destination, but you get to pick the music. You don't get to drive. But, But every time Jesus comes to someone and gives them this invitation, he doesn't say, hey, invite me into your life. Jesus says, come follow me. In Mark chapter 1, when Jesus begins preaching, he preaches this message, the time has come, the kingdom is near, repent, which means to turn, this is a course correction, this is a new trajectory, and believe. In Mark chapter 8, when Jesus is teaching a crowd, he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The invitation of Jesus, his arrival, means for us an invitation to have our world turned on end. And I want to look this morning at the story of Mary and the way that she responded to this call from God in her life, because her life was turned upside down in a way that it never looked the same again. So Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asks, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So there's this moment in Mary's life where she has this encounter with God and her life never looks the same. And I want to look this morning at some observations from the way Mary responds, from the way this invitation unfolds, because I think it will help us understand what we mean when I ask the question, are you ready to have your life turned upside down? Because the arrival of Jesus and his love for us means that we have the ability now in his grace to to love God in return, but to love God calls us to a path of obedient living right here, right now, right in the context that we're already in. 
So what does this look like? How do we begin to respond? So the first observation that I see in Mary's life is this, is that God uses ordinary people to accomplish his purposes. God uses ordinary, everyday people to accomplish his purpose. Now, if, if I were going to hatch a plot to redeem the world, if, if I were going to set this whole thing in motion, what I would do is I would have sent Jesus to be born in Rome, the, the military, political sort of epicenter of the day, and I would have made sure he was born to an emperor and he had wealth and status and influence and a position in a hierarchical, hierarchical structure because then he would have really been able to make things change and been able to make things happen. It's mind-boggling to me that God does not send Jesus to be born in a palace to an emperor, someone who has status and influence and power. No, Jesus chooses Mary. Who, who is maybe between the ages of 13 and 16. She is young. She is from a blue-collar, working-class, ordinary family. She does not have power. She does not have status. She does not have influence. She is ordinary. And, and I think it's even funny that Jesus is from Nazareth. If you read the Gospel of John, when Jesus is calling his disciples, he calls Nathaniel and Philip. And Nathaniel, in John 1.46, he says, Jesus of Nazareth. Does, can anything good even come from Nazareth? I mean, Jesus isn't even from a town that has a good reputation. Nazareth was this small agricultural village that was of little significance. And, and I want us to understand that, that God is unfolding his plan of redemption through ordinary people like you and like me. And, and I think sometimes we read scripture and we read these stories of people and we think, man, they must have somehow been holier or had access to more of God's power. But that's not true. They were ordinary people that God chose to use to accomplish his purpose. I mean, you've got someone like Peter. When you read the Old Testament, I mean, Peter sometimes gets intimidated and, and gives in to peer pressure. He's not perfect. In the Old Testament, you have someone like David who has an affair and who gets a person murdered. These are not perfect people. And God uses ordinary people like you and like me to accomplish his purpose. And the question for us, will we let our life be turned upside down and, and answer that invitation of God to be a part of what he's doing in the world? Here's the second observation I have from Mary's life is that an encounter with God will often be disruptive. Right? So Mary, you can just imagine, if you're married, think about what it was like to plan your wedding. There's this sense of anticipation for her. She's married to jo or getting ready to be married to Joseph, and you can imagine she's thinking about her, their life together. She's anticipating that day when Joseph's carpentry business will be up and running, and they'll be financially stable, and they'll have a bunch of little kids running around, and you can just imagine her excitement. And then God shows up in her world and says, oh yeah, Mary, you're a virgin, but you're going to have a child. That's disruptive. That, that will cause changes in Mary's five-year plan. It's not going to look the same anymore. And I think sometimes what we want is we want to invite Jesus into our life, but we say, it's kind of like, I have three kids, four and under. It's kind of like when we go to someone's house who doesn't have kids, we walk in and we say, don't touch anything. You'll break something, right? It's kind of like what we do. We invite Jesus into our life and we say, don't touch anything. I've got it right where I want it. Don't break anything. And Jesus comes in and he says, all right, let's change some things up. Let's go in a new direction. And we go, no, 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 you don't have permission to do that. But the call of God to answer that invitation to join him in what he's doing will always disrupt our own plans for our life. The third observation that ties right in with that is this, that the call of God is not convenient. Oh, we like convenience, don't we? And it's not a bad thing. I like convenience. But think about it. In, 
I think in a, in a consumeristic culture, we're so prone to convenience because in a consumeristic culture, the culture caters to us. They want it to be convenient for us. I mean, we have a whole industry like the fast food industry that can make food in a manner that's creepy fast. Like food shouldn't be cooked that quickly, right? But they cater to our convenience. And so we're not used to waiting. We want things right now, how we want them, when we want them. Anybody play the drive through game? You go to a fast food restaurant and you pull up and what you do is you count the number of cars in the drive through lane. And, and if there's like three, four cars, what you do is you go, okay, I would be behind the blue truck and you park and you like shuffle run inside because it's not cool to actually run, but you move fast and you go, okay, I'm behind the blue truck. The goal is to get your food inside quicker than the truck that you would have been behind, right? Because if you do, you chose wisely. You didn't have to wait as long. You weren't inconvenienced. Or think about the grocery store. Right? And, and, and the, the complex logarithms, algorithms that we have to choose which checkout line we're going to go in. And I have the spiritual gift of always choosing wrong. Right? <laughs> and so what I do is I go and I'm like, okay, that person has half a cart. They have four items. So I get over here and it never fails that they're like, beep. Okay, that's a $40 ham. And the person goes, well, the tag was $8. And they have to call a manager. And then they write a check. And I'm behind them like, oh, I should have gone with the half cart person. Or, or we go to the express lane. And in the express lane, if it takes a little bit longer, we start to judge people, don't we? It takes a little bit longer and you start counting. They have 17 items that says 12 or fewer on the sign, right? And, and we start to judge them like they're clearly not sanctified because if they were, they would have gone to the right line, not the one that says 12 or fewer, right? Because we don't like to be inconvenienced. We don't like to wait. But here's the problem. We take this convenient mindset and we go over here and we plug it into our faith and, and we, we say, Jesus, come into my life and make it convenient. The problem is Jesus isn't so concerned about our convenience. He's concerned about his plan of redemption unfolding. And our convenience is often at odds with this work of redemption that God is doing. And so it's disruptive and it calls us to lay down our life of convenience. Ah, oh, I don't like that. I like convenience. But nothing about this was convenient for Mary. I want to know, how does she have that conversation with Joseph? You know, as she's walking, does she think, okay, um, do I lead with the fact that I'm having a baby? Do I lead with the fact that I'm still a virgin? How do I open this conversation? Right? There's no good way to do that. Joseph's assumption is going to be that she's unfaithful. She risks losing her marriage, her impending marriage. And in fact, we, we know that Joseph had in mind to divorce her quietly until God intervenes. She risks being shamed and ostracized by her family. Nothing about this is convenient for her. The next observation that I had is that God often calls us beyond what we're comfortable with and feel capable of. That God will begin to nudge us and the Spirit will begin to work in our lives and there will be sort of this upwelling conviction of the Spirit about something that God is calling us to. And maybe it's something simple. Maybe you get the sense that God is saying, hey, I want you to start a Bible study that meets once a month in the lunchroom at work. You know some people that are believers. I want you to start it and I want you to lead it. And you go, yeah, God, that's great, except for the fact that I'm not a Bible scholar. I don't feel like I'm a leader. This isn't really my place. And we think of all the reasons why we can't because our, our, our capability often falls short of God's calling. And God calls us to something that we go, yeah, I'm really not comfortable with that. I don't feel capable. And I think God does that on purpose because of something that Steve talked about last week. Steve said that the, the problems 
can become an opportunity to encounter God's grace in newer and deeper and richer ways. And I think God will always call us to things that are beyond our capability because he wants us to step out and to trust him. Because the gap between our calling or or our capacity and God's calling, that gap can only be bridged by the movement of God's Holy Spirit and his power in our lives. Mary asks this question. She goes, "Uh, Gabriel, how how can this be? How am I going to have a child? And Gabriel says, the power of the Most High will come upon you and the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. In other words, she says, God will accomplish what God has called you to. Listen, the same is true in our lives. When God calls you to something that is beyond your capability and beyond your comfort, God and his Holy Spirit, his grace, is the only way to bridge that gap. And the invitation is one for us to step out and say, okay, God, I trust you. And finally, I think this takes surrender. It means that we have to lay down our plan, our purpose, our agenda for our own life. We have to say, okay, God, I'm willing to set that aside and I will step obediently into what you're calling me into. And surrender is hard because I don't know about you, but I like control. There's just moments where I feel safer being in control. And I think what we realize is that control is all an illusion. We control so little. And I think God comes to us and he says, listen, I want to invite you into my agenda. I want to invite you into what I'm doing. But to do that, it's going to disrupt your plan and it's going to call you to lay down your life, to surrender your own plan. Can you let go of your own agenda for your life? And, and this is, those, those are hard things, to have your life turned upside down, to have God call us into things beyond what we're comfortable with and capable of, to have to, have to surrender our plan for our lives. Those are hard things. And that's why I, I, I'm, I am shocked by Mary's response. And, and I think her example is important for us. Because when Mary responds in verse 38, she says these two things that I find fascinating. She says, I am the Lord's servant. And so Mary responds with the heart of a servant. And here's the thing about a servant. When you are serving someone with the heart of a true servant, what you do is you set aside your agenda and you say, okay, I'm going to serve this person. What do they need? I I think one of the most damaging kinds of service is when we impose our agenda on another in the name of service, right? True service and the true heart of a servant says, let me set aside my agenda. Now, how can I serve your agenda? And Mary responds with the heart of a servant. She says, okay, God, let your word to me be fulfilled. So she responds with the heart of a servant, laying aside her agenda for her life, and she responds with the disposition of obedient trust. And she says, let your word to me be fulfilled. Now, here's my question. Why in the world would Mary respond that way? And, and if it were me, like, if this were my story, it would have been like, and Aaron begrudgingly said, I don't like it, but I'll do it, right? That's my attitude so much of the time. Like, God, I don't like this. I don't feel comfortable. I, I'd rather do my agenda. I, I had it pretty well thought out, but fine, I'll do it. But Mary doesn't do that. She responds with this disposition of obedient trust, and she seems happy to do it. And what I think is fascinating, if you continue reading in verse 46, it starts Mary's song, the Magnificat, and it says, she begins to praise God. She says, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. And she just starts praising God. And I think what we see in Mary's life is that her disposition of obedient trust, her heart of a servant, is not about this sort of um, obligation to follow rules, but you see that Mary has this genuine love for the God that she serves. 
And, and remember this, there's this observation about relationships that love has a tendency to drive us to extravagant action on behalf of the one that we love. And so Mary can step into this and say, I'm your servant, let your word to me be fulfilled because this is a response of love towards the God who has loved and blessed her. And, and here, here's one of the key insights I want you to take from Mary's life. It's that love changes the framework of obedience from duty to desire, from have to to want to. I think so often we think about this dynamic as if God were the upset parent asking us to do our chores. Fine, like I'll do it, but I don't want to. But what we see in Mary is this response of love as such that, that this call to surrender and to obedience is not for her an act of obligation. She doesn't do this math problem of saying, okay, well, you blessed me with a, a fiance and you blessed me with a house, so I guess I owe you one. No, th there's no tally. There's no scorekeeping. Mary says, I'm your servant. Let your word to me be fulfilled. And this is an act of love that's extravagant towards the God that has first loved her. And, and, and sometimes I find myself asking this question, okay, God loves us. He calls us to this invitation to respond to his love. And I find myself asking in the middle of this idea of obedience and love, God, what do you really want from us? What, what is it that you're after? And, and Moses in the Old Testament, he answers this question, and I think he answers it profoundly. What is it that God really wants from us? Because I think for so many of us, we get caught in this place of obligation and duty, thinking that what God wants is for us to live nice, good, moral lives, but we don't really look any different. And Moses says this in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. He says, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? And he reduces it to five things that I think are profound. He says, God asks of you, one, but to fear the Lord your God. That's to have a deep sense of awe and reverence for him. He says, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, and to observe the Lord's commands. And so, yes, he talks about observing the Lord's commands, and he talks about walking in obedience, but right there in the middle is this simple phrase that what God wants for us is to love him. That our first duty is not to, to be obliged to sort of follow some, some rules that God has set for us. No, what God wants is for us to love him. And out of the, our love for him flows our obedience. And here's what we have to understand is that obedience and love are connected. And so the inverse is true. You cannot say that you love God and then walk in disobedience to him. Moses says, no, if you love God, you will walk obediently in the way that he has called you to walk. You will align your life with how he's called you to live. But for Moses, in Deuteronomy, obedience is not about a dry adherence to rules. For Moses, as he begins to describe obedience, he begins to describe a new way of living and being in the world. We are to be a new kind of people. And then he begins to get at this in verse 16. He, he makes this statement that for us sounds a little confusing. He says, circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked people. Now, circumcision was for the, the ancient people of Israel. It was the outward sign physically on their bodies that they were in a covenant relationship with God. It signified that covenant promise. That was to be their mark. But what Moses said is, listen, God isn't just concerned about the outward 
response to that. God doesn't want just an outward blind obedience. What God wants is a disposition of the heart and life that is aligned with how God would call us to live. So what Moses says is, listen, it's about the circumcision of your heart. It's about the cutting away of a rebellious spirit. And it's about a life aligned with how God calls us to live, to be his servant people who are about his agenda. That we are asking this question, what is God up to in the world and how can I join in with what God is doing? And he he says, don't be a stiff-necked people any longer. And this idea of being a stiff-necked people, it it brings to mind this image of of an oxen who's in a yoke. And a stiff-necked oxen will not let their neck be turned to the right or the left. They are choosing the course. And Moses says, listen, don't be stiff-necked. Let God have have control. Surrender, submit to his his guidance and direction in your life. But, But it's not a sense of, okay, God, I have to. He says, no, God wants us as his people to love him. And out of that love comes an obedience that says, God, I want to lay my life down. I want to join you in what you're doing. I want my life to be about your agenda. And God calls us again to have the disposition of a servant. I want to read this quote. I think we have it on the screen for you. This is by the Old Testament uh, scholar E.H. Merrill, and he says this, He says, to serve the Lord with all your heart and soul is to serve the Lord with unreserved, nothing held back, and unqualified. There's no, God, yeah, you can have this, but it's unreserved, unqualified devotion. He says, one that marked them as God's peculiar people. We look different. We are God's peculiar people who have been made his servant nation. His servant nation means that that they are about his agenda. And in Jesus Christ, we are a part of this promise. We are invited to be part of God's people, to be about his agenda, to be his servant people. He says this, achieving God's redemptive purposes. Our life is to be about helping God achieve his redemptive purposes. And then Moses, he goes on and he gets even more concrete in this passage. In verse 17, he says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome. He begins to describe the character of God. He is so far above and beyond. He is great, God of gods and Lord of lords. And he says, Who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. This is a God who refuses to distort justice for personal gain. It was common practice in the Near East to think that you could bribe the gods of the time. The other nations around them, they served gods like Marduk or, or, or Baal, and they had this thought process that you could earn the favor of the gods if you could just bring the right sacrifices, you could earn their favor. But Moses says, listen, the God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, he cannot be bought. He does not distort justice for his own personal gain. And then Moses continues and he says this, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Verse 19, he says, and you are to love those who are foreigners for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Listen, to be fatherless, to be a widow, to be a foreigner in that time meant that your economic livelihood was at stake. You did not have the same access to land ownership. You did not have the same access access to a way to support yourself. And Moses says, listen, the heart of God is for people who are at risk of being oppressed. And if you will be obedient to the call of God, you too will be concerned about the cause of people who risk being oppressed. This is the heart of God in a broken world. And God calls us as his servant people to enter the very places of brokenness and to bear witness to his love and to his redemption to achieve his redemptive purposes. And as I was reading this passage this week, I wrestled with this question. It says that God clothes and gives food to the foreigner, the widow, and the fatherless. And my question was, how how does God do that? 
Is it like the manna that God just causes to appear? And then it struck me. The answer to that question, how does God give clothing and food to the fatherless, the widow, and the foreigner? He does it, verse 20, or verse 19. And you were to love those who were foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners. Listen, God cares for and gives clothing and food to the fatherless, the widow, and the foreigner through his servant people. The brokenness that you and I see in the world is a call for us as the servant people of God out of love for him, a love that drives us to extravagant action to say, my life is not about my convenience. My life is not about my agenda. Listen, listen, Christmas, it can become about spending and consuming and attaining. Listen, the, the, the season of Advent is not a call to, to get more stuff and consume. The call of Advent is to go and be spent on behalf of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let this turn your world upside down. So here's a simple challenge I have for you this Advent season. Will you let yourself be inconvenienced by the needs of other people? Who around you is at risk of suffering injustice in the world that we live in? Who around you is at risk of being oppressed in the culture in which we live? Are we willing to let our lives be inconvenienced by their place of deep need? And are we willing to answer boldly and obediently the call of God to live as a sent people? Kyle read it during the the reading. Love one another as I have loved you. Later, when Jesus is teaching to the disciples, he says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And so this Advent season, as as we celebrate the sending of Jesus, we cannot celebrate the sending of Jesus without recognizing that you and I are sent as well. So we cannot say that we love God and are obedient to him if we are about and so consumed by our own convenience. If we say that we love God, let us live it obediently by being inconvenienced by the needs and concerns of a world that is broken. Let us live as sent people. So here's, here's my response for us this week. I have three simple things for us. Three ways for us to respond recognizing that God is calling for us to partner with him in his redemptive purpose and mission in the world. Here's our three responses. I want to challenge us to seek him. A love for God is not something that we just have to wake up and say, okay, today I'm going to love God. A love for God, like love in any other relationship, is cultivated over time. And so I want to challenge us to be a people who seek after God who spend time in the word, who spend time in prayer, who spend time seeking his voice and his presence. Spend time this week seeking God. And I don't mean, if this is something that's new for you, don't don't try to spend an hour a day. Take 10 minutes. And if you don't know where to start, I want to encourage you, go to our website, go to the Facebook page. We have an Advent devotional resource. Use that, start there, to begin thinking and reflecting on this Advent season. But seek him, and as you seek him, as you open up your life to God, he will begin to cultivate a heart of love in you. A love for God is not something we work up. It is a gift of God's grace in our lives. Secondly, I want to call us to be a people who serve. That's the third one, who serve. Where is God calling you to love others? Through tangible investment and action. And the middle way we can respond is surrender. Are there places where you need to give up control? Where have you been holding on to your own plan? And God says, listen, I have a new agenda. I want you to be about something different. I want you to be my servant people in the world. And we're going, yeah, but God, I've got my five-year plan. And he's saying, no, join with me. Partner with me in what I'm doing. Live as sent people. Will we seek him? 
Will we surrender our lives, our plan, our purpose to him? And will we live a life of service where we say, you know what? To love others, especially to love those who cannot return any sort of favor back is never convenient and it will cost something of us. Listen, love always costs something. It always demands something of us. But may we live as God's servant people about his redemptive purpose in the world. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and I thank you for uh, the story of Mary and the way that she is willing to say, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And God, I pray, I ask for your grace to respond like Mary does. So many times it's easy to respond in a begrudging way like, okay, God, we'll, we'll do what you want us to do, but we're not gonna like it. But God, I pray that you would begin to form in us the heart of a servant, a heart that says it's not about our agenda. It's not about our comfort and convenience. It's about the work that you're doing in the world and you invite us to partner with you. And so God, if the season of Advent is, is anything, I think in a lot of ways, it's a call for us to be about the mission of the gospel. So even today, as we reflect on the sending of your son, God, may we live as a sent people and may we do so in your grace and your strength and your power. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.